Hey everybody, Bobby here. Welcome back to Numbers on the Boards. I hope you enjoyed part one of Scent Marshall's conversation with Skin Wade. In part two, which is going to start right after I stop talking, we'll turn our attention toward the Mavericks, including what the organization has done and will do in light of recent events around our country, and Scent's letter to employees detailing the steps that we can take and the decisions that we must make in order to take the lead and affect positive change for all our neighbors in the community. Thank you for listening to me. Let's go back to Scent and Skin. Before we get to the letter that you sent to your crew, I want to talk about what I saw yesterday on the news with your buddy Mark Cuban. Okay. And his buddy Justin Jackson yes, and his buddy Dwight yes, Powell and those all guys. All our buddies. All our buddies. Yeah. So tell us, uh, you know, what what you're hearing from the guys that, you know, play on the court and the yes. coaching staff, and of course, yes. the, our owner and Mark, how they're feeling about this and what they are doing. They, um, I think our guys, and they've been texting me and all that, they, they want to make a difference. Uh, you know, some are just numb. They can't believe it. Some have are living the black experience uh, in America, um, and they're outraged. They want to do something. They want to channel their energy, and so that's what our team is working on right now. What's our community action plan? What are we going to do? Because we've got to take all this and direct it in a good place, so they want to do something. Uh, my boss and I had a good conversation. He's just you know, as a white man trying to figure out, okay, what what is it that I don't know? What is it that I need to understand? How can I open up my understanding? What is it that I can tell my white friends we all need to do to make the situation uh, better? Um, and then, of course, I think just, you know, praying and to be involved in the prayer services and all that is important. They want to make a difference. They want to understand, and they want to make a difference, all of us. So the understanding is either help me understand what this experience is about or help me understand why I'm actually having this experience. And so this is where we go deep. This is where we truly, truly go deep. And, yeah, we want to play basketball, but right now they're not talking about basketball. No. They're not talking about basketball, and I think that's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. This touches everybody. It's what I said earlier. I mean, they're on a basketball team one of the most, if not the most international team in the NBA, they're with everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what I talk about with my son and all his friends and my daughters and all their friends growing up. They grew up, they're with everybody. So when something happens to one of your homies, to one of your buddies, it's happening to you. Mm -hmm. And that's what's different. There are so many diverse groups of buddies and pals now. And so it's impacting everybody. Yeah, basketball is really extraordinary in that regard. Now, I was mm -hmm. thinking over the weekend, I mean, I, I encourage all different types of sports, but I think more than any, and I'm just going to call it an industry. Yeah. I think more than any industry, I think the NBA is the most socially progressive, even if you compare it to, I don't know, the energy field or right. even you, to these other you know sports, uh, the NFL right. and so on. And I'm wondering, why, why is that? Why, why are we in a position where and I realize there's a lot of African Americans that play basketball, but mm -hmm. I there's a lot of African Americans play in the NFL, oh, right. and the, so it's it's right. not that cut and dried. Why is basketball this thing that it's become? Uh, first of all, I think part of it is the leadership. I mean, so you have you know Adam Silver, of course. We had you know Commissioner Stern. I think mm -hmm. a lot of it is leadership that says we are going to foster an environment where. Everybody is welcome. Everybody's engaged. I think the NBA has a culture of 
um, embracing everybody. So there's a culture of inclusion to where when things step out of that, it's called out. And so I think it's leadership. I mean, I actually think to have the right kind of uh, culture, it starts at the top. The tone starts at the top. And then I also think is because players have become even more and more vocal. And, yeah, they've been vocal over the years. But I think also when you know you're in an environment where that's okay, and it's not like anybody's asking for permission. I mean, these are grown men stepping out, and they step out even more and more. So I think it's a combination. It's a combination of the league and then a combination of who these fine young people are. And they have grown up with everybody, and they're not going to tolerate it, and they're going to speak out. And I love that. I think about, okay, so my kids are 22, 25, 28 on Friday, and 37. Okay. When I think about them, I think about the fact that they grew up with everybody. They speak up, they speak out, and they do that is because we have taught them that. And so it's the same generation that's playing basketball right now. Mm -hmm. And that's how they have been raised, and they've all been raised differently. Okay. But that's the climate that they have been raised in, and they've seen a lot too, and they speak up about it, and I love it. And it's, and it's okay. It's, it's, it's okay to do that, and I think their fans also expect them to do that. And with all social media and all that, when something happens like this, people are going out there, you know, what is this person saying? What is that person saying? Where's the statement from this? Where's the statement from that? And so, so you know people are looking for that. And fortunately, we have people who will speak out, because I read a lot this weekend, I said, I am so proud of these players across the entire league. And there, you know, and there's always debate. Should we say something? Should we go light? Should we just say we're here to help? It's like, miss me with that. No, we are coming out saying we don't like what happened here. We don't like it. Even when I sent my letter, I said, somebody said, there will be some employees that don't like that. I said, uh, beautiful. And, and, and that's beautiful because they have the right not to agree with me. They have the right to think very differently. Hopefully they don't have races of views and actions because they can't work at the Dallas Mavericks, mm -hmm. okay, because we're not tolerating that. But it's okay not to agree with what I wrote. Well, let's talk about what you wrote. What did you – because you were mentioning the culture of the NBA. Mm -hmm. And one thing I noticed, you know, uh, Bobby and I do this podcast together, so I'll come poke my head in over there. But drastic cultural difference in the workplace. Yes. Like, it was really evident, and there was a specific, a specific style to it. Mm -hmm. So I am very curious about, and I think people listening to this need to know, what do you communicate to your employees that are part of this culture of the Dallas Mavericks to take out of this time? Yeah, so what I, what I try to do, and I won't read it to you, but I did my, you know, I do uh, my two cents, since I'm sent, okay, mm -hmm. hashtag my two cents. Uh, I do a weekly letter. Uh, because just with the COVID situation and we're working remotely, we have our cadence, certain things we do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, I wrap it up and I send a letter to the team to kind of just recognize different accomplishments of folks and give some shout outs, but then also to impart some kind of message and funny story and let them know kind of what's going on in my life. So it's fun, it's fun kind of, uh, uh, letter. So I did the Friday letter and then all this broke out hmm. and I'm like, okay, it's like I'm about to do a Monday letter too. And so I prayed about it because, you know me, praying woman, like, Lord, okay, you know all these people, you know their hearts. I mean, like, what is it that you want me to communicate to them? And so I ended up sending out a letter, 
and it's in four different sections. And the sections are Our Promise is the first one, and I talk about the workplace promise at the Dallas Mavericks. Our workplace promise is that if you work at the Dallas Mavericks, you work in a place where every voice matters. Okay, so you hear those sirens right now? Mm-hmm. Okay, you hear those sirens right now. So, you okay, so I taught my kids when they hear a siren, pray because somebody's in trouble. I mean, that's what I taught them. To this day, I'm so proud of them. All four of them do it. Even if we're in the call, they go, Mom, Mom, don't you hear that? You got to stop. We got to pray. <laughs> okay? Because somebody's in trouble. Okay? Unfortunately, now you got to think, okay, so, like, what is, what's going on out there? Okay? Yeah. Like, are we getting ready to have another George Floyd situation? Unfortunately, we're not. Okay? Right. We're not. And, and our, our folks here have been wonderful. Okay? But you think that. Okay, so we just heard the sirens. So let's get back to this. So if you work at the Dallas Mavericks, you know, or you should know, I hope we've gotten it across, that every voice matters and everybody belongs, that it's a speak-up culture. What you have to say matters to us. We want to hear your voice. You belong here. We hope we have enough uh, processes, procedures, systems set up where you know you are a part of the family and you belong here. There is a sense of inclusion. You're not out of place. You don't have to have the imposter syndrome and wonder, should I be here? Are they going to find me out? You belong here. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so we want everybody to feel that. Unfortunately, People who come in now, they feel that, okay? So that's the promise, okay? So the promise is also about treating people fairly and with respect, and we make that promise to you. Well, then I talk about current events because current events have caused a lot of people to realize that America has not lived up to her promise to her citizens, and that's what's underneath everything that is going on right now. There is a promise that has not been kept, and that's what's underneath all of this. So the, And then I actually talk about how right now people are saying what happened to George Floyd is a violation of the promise, and we're not going to tolerate it anymore because he's not the only one. Every time we turn around, there's another one, and we're not going to take it. America, you have to keep your promise. So then I get on to decision time. And I actually, how long you got now? Because you know, I can go No, 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 we're going, we're going, I'm listening. Okay, because I actually want to read you the paragraph on decision time. Can I do that? Yes. This is the only paragraph I'll read you. It says, we're at a crossroads in America. As a nation, we have some decisions to make. Are we going to continue to perpetuate racial inequities and injustices, or are we going to hold the people accountable who killed an unarmed black man while he repeated, I can't breathe, and called out for his mother? Will we continue to require parents to have the talk with their black boys and girls because they live in a very different America than their non-black friends, or are we going to change so that the talk is one day no longer necessary. Will we brush it off as normal when we read about a woman in Central Park calling the cops on a black man, using the call as a weapon because she knows the end of that story is often tragic? Or will we decide enough is enough and put an end to racism and discrimination? These are some of the questions underneath the current unrest. So the reason it was important to me to lay that out is because with all this stuff that you all see on TV, the vehicles burning, the 
uh, precinct being burned down in Minneapolis, the, the looting and all that, it's easy to get distracted. Mm-hmm. I had to let our team know what this is all about. This is about America not keeping its promise, and now we have some decisions to make and some questions to answer, and we need to come out on the right side of this. So then after that is a whole page of a call to action. What I tell our people I need them to do, and I talk about that it impacts all of us. And I said, you know, we've been in a crisis before, so we're good at this. We know how to respond to a crisis. We stand on a foundation of diversity and inclusion. We know what that's all about. And so I talk about our core values, and you know they spell crafts, character, respect, authenticity, fairness, teamwork, and safety. And I say, okay, as a team, it's time to perfect our crafts and help make a difference by doing the following things. It's open up our minds, open our hearts, open our understanding, open our circle, open our eyes, mouth, and hands to address these problems. And to open our minds is to process why people are upset and get underneath that. Our hearts is about showing compassion to black men and what they are dealing with in this country right now. And yes, black men and women and others are getting killed, but truly the plight of the black man is something very different. He's not trusted, people are afraid of him. That's outrageous to me. That's my husband, my sons, my brother. So open the hearts about that. And then I even make a comment about try to come up with ways to dry his tears and comfort his fears because I do this almost every day with my two sons. Most people I work with don't have to do that every day. That's something that I do have to do every day Mm -hmm. because America's not keeping its promise. Then I said, okay, you'll love this one. I said, open our understanding to those who are often stereotyped as the oppressor because the ills of a few where people just start. I mean, we got white people, white men in our organization and so I don't want them walking around on eggshells and thinking like, okay, everybody thinks I'm the bad person. I mean, that's who. And so then they think, okay, that's inherently like, you know, unfair. Mm-hmm. I want people to realize that. I want the blacks in our organization to realize what our white colleagues and friends are dealing with too. Okay, it's impacting all of us. And I talked already about open up the circle. And then I just basically say, you know, we're dealing with the global pandemic and a humanitarian crisis. This is a crisis of humanity. So we got both. So we need to stay healthy and safe and have our courageous conversations, enhance our understanding, recognize that all of us are impacted by it, not just black people, and get on out there and rebuild Dallas and help Dallas rebound. And we're going to do it. And these are the five things that we're going to monitor, put an action plan around, engage in a big community conversation and action plan, and we're going to do it. And I told him right now, and the list could have gone on forever, but these are the five I want us focused on right now. And so the conversation started this morning. So there are so many different things I'm thinking about as I digest, you know, what all you laid out there. It gives me a, a lot of different thoughts. But one of the things I kept coming back to while you were outlining that is, and it all depends on your perspective, mm-hmm. but I'm like, who, I don't understand who would object to anything in here because it all seems so very reasonable. I feel like what we're talking about mm-hmm. are things that are very reasonable. However, it's clear that that's not the way that a mass majority of people view things. Right. And I, one of the things that this keeps coming back to time and time again for me is you talked about the original promise that she made mm-hmm. and talking about this country. Right. 
And I thought about this a lot over the last week. Mm -hmm. The history of our country. Our country, if you read the Constitution, it reads perfectly. Right. But it was written for white men. Right. Okay. Right. And so I just could not help but be overwhelmed by the idea. If you look at the Bill of Rights mm -hmm. and what those things are about, mm -hmm. and for George Floyd mm -hmm. to be an unarmed man mm -hmm. murdered by the authorities on mm -hmm. Veterans Day. Right. Where we honor people that gave right. their lives to go fight for these freedoms, right. but these are freedoms for white people. Right, but they ought to be freedoms for black people. They're supposed too. to be freedoms for everybody. That's exactly right. And people aren't looking at it that way, right. depending on who the person is and what right. their experiences are. Right. And so now is this really, uh, th this moment where we are engaging with all this, or hopefully right. engaging with it the right. right way. Exactly. And one of the things that is core to a lot of this that will stop the conversation dead for so many people mm -hmm. is when we use the word privilege. Yes. And it is a hot button word. And you want to see a white person get defensive. Right. It, help us understand what you mean when you say privilege mm -hmm. and how it relates to every single white person, no matter if they make $5,000 a year, mm -hmm. or if they are Mark Cuban. Okay, so, and, and it's actually a word that I don't use often. I mean, I use it when I reference this video, this exercise that we're going to do. Uh, and I actually don't use it often for a lot of reasons, because, A, it is a lightning rod. Mm -hmm. And I would just rather say <laughs> what I want to say without hiding behind a word. And, and all that, when people are talking about that, it is that they're just saying, you are given the benefit of the doubt. You're giving up. You're given a pass. You're given certain opportunities that I don't get to to get because you won't give them to me because you think the privilege is yours. That this is all for you. This is your country. You believe you built this country, which I would argue it was built on the backs of black people. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, but. You believe, and, and I'm not saying you believe this. Yes. Okay. I'm with you. That the Bill of Rights is for you. Okay. You have seen yourself running the place. You have seen yourself uh, leading the country. I mean, Barack Obama, President Barack Obama was our first black man. So you think this is yours. And in fact, in fact, when I was growing up, I used to tell my mother, this is the white man's world. And so I'm going to have a piece of it and a part to play in it because my Bible says my father is rich, talking about God, mm -hmm. and that the cattle up on a thousand hills belongs to him. I can ask him what I want. She said I used to just say that stuff as a teenager. And so one day she said she stopped me, and she said, I don't know where you got that from, but this is the white man's world, and he runs everything. This is God's world. This is God's world. But that's how we're taught because, you know, you see them, the White House. It ain't the Black House. OK, so that, I mean, that's what you see. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where it comes from. You're seeing the same thing I'm seeing, that the white people are running everything. So, OK, it's theirs. And so they're privileged. They get to have it. They can assume that they get to live in certain places and do certain things. And so that's what I think some people mean about privilege that you have grown up a certain way. You haven't had some of the, deal with some of the ills that we've had to deal with. 
I don't use that whole word a lot. I just like to say it. Mm-hmm. Your experience has been different from mine. And this world is more accepting of you than they are of me. And there are certain things that I have to deal with that you don't have to deal with. And if we want to call that privilege, that's fine. Right. Okay. It's real. Yeah. It's real. Uh, um, the other thing, there's there's two main things I was thinking about as you were <laughs> laying that out. I'm sorry. No, no, I love it. I love it. Um, the, I got uh, a lot of passion on this stuff. And that's why we're talking to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, how important is a proactive readdressing of public school systems approach to history? How do we, you follow where I'm going oh. with this? Well, yeah. I mean, we have states, and I can't remember, is Texas one of them where they tried to take slavery out of the school, out of the history books and all that? Well, I, ju- I you know, I don't know the history that I just know. I that even... I know what I was taught, and there's a lot of things that were glossed over. Right. We are, are all of our young people, I mean, all of us need to understand the history in this country. That is one of my husband's favorite responses to things is wife, and he literally, I've been married 36, seven years, he literally calls me wife. <laughs> wife, we have a dark, sordid history of racism and oppression in this country. 400 years ago, I mean, he will just go with it. Slavery is real. And we've had an interesting conversation that I actually had with some of our public officials not too long ago about, and I was talking about my husband, Mm -hmm. and so how he naturally goes there to help explain some things, right? And we talked about, because he believes that he has seen some differences in slave states, you know, states that had slaves, and states uh, states that did not have slaves and of course we grew up in california not to say that we didn't have racism and oppression because you know it's it's everywhere right Uh, but we have seen some differences and so we talk a lot about that we were taught history i mean growing up and i had my zip code was 94804 i grew up poor housing projects gun to my head three times abusive i could go on and on i've i've seen stuff and experience stuff. I got the best public education that anybody could get. And I learned a lot. And it was back in the day, things have changed now with public education, Mm -hmm. but it was back in the day when we taught history, we stopped to acknowledge what was going on. I remember in 1968 when Dr. King, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King got uh, assassinated and being pulled out of school. I mean, I remember all of that, and everything just stopped. Teachers explained what was going on. I mean, these are white teachers. I mean, we knew that. They take you back to history. I mean, you knew all of that. And even like now when I give my speeches and I talk to the kids and commencement, I said, and if you know your civil rights history, it used to be a point in time when I would say, and yet I know you know your civil rights history, and you know the four girls who got, uh, you know, who were in that bombing, Mm -hmm. you know, Cynthia, Denise, Carol, and Carol, I mean, Addie, and so I, I would rattle them off. And so it got to a point where, like, nobody knew what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, we're not teaching history anymore. We want to gloss over some things. We want to act like things didn't happen. But we can't do that because if you don't stop and understand what's happened in the past, history will repeat itself. Mm-hmm. You have to know what has happened. You have to know why it was bad. You have to know how we started to overcome it so we can continue to make progress or we're going right back 
And that's what I'm afraid of. We cannot have history repeat itself. And these protests are about these people of all ages saying we're not going to go back. Now, some don't realize it's history repeating itself because they don't know the history. They're just saying this is not a part of like what I'm going to be a part of and it's not going to happen because these are my friends. And then some are saying that was my history. Some like me are saying my parents left Birmingham, Alabama when I was a baby. So I wouldn't have to experience this. I'm sorry. Uh-uh. This is not happening. You're not going you're not going to treat me like this. History matters. Okay, explain uh systemic what systemic racism means to somebody that doesn't engage in these kinds of conversations and so they hear that term what explain that to that person it means it is ingrained in our processes it's ingrained in quote unquote our systems it's ingrained in our hiring practices it's ingrained in our thinking it's ingrained in our standardized tests that are culturally biased that there's so many things where the system is geared towards white people and against people of color. And the way you start chipping away at that is, and that's why it's so important. And we talk about diversity and inclusion, having everybody at the table, a seat at the table, because people, when you have everybody at the table, they recognize that. And they say, well, no, we can't do that. Why are we asking that like that? Well, no, no, that's not part of that culture. We gotta change that, we gotta do that. But if you don't have, you just have a certain group of people running everything, the systems are designed for those people. And so it's systemic. And so you end up having a culture where you have more blacks in prison. That, I mean, you have in prison that disproportionate to the population. It's out of whack. That's, that's so outrageous to me. I mean, it's just so outrageous. And so, but it's because these systems are designed cultivated and executed by white people and not us. And so that's why you have to have everybody in there. It's systemic. It's, it's in the system. I'm not it's trying truly to. in the system. It's not like it's just a rule or a practice. It's in the system. If you have a system that says you're going to have a college recruiting program, I'll just give you one example, mm -hmm. and you're going to all Ivy League schools, what are the chances that you're going to have a very diverse group of students coming to interview with you and coming into your com company if you're going just to Ivy League. Right. Now, I say that with two of my nieces having graduated from Columbia and one's actually getting ready to get her Ph.D. from Princeton. So I got some black Ivies in the family. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> but, but what are the chances, though? But if you have in your if you have Ivy League, you've got schools from everywhere. You've got your historically black colleges. You have a diverse group of schools that you recruit at. You will get a diverse group of students. But if your, your policies, your systems, your recruiting systems, practices only go to one place, that's what you're going to get. That's a problem in the system, and you will never catch up. That's a, that's a great example of that. And I'm sure my Ph.D. Princeton niece who is – Miss Black Woman, okay, because this is her stuff, political science, all that. Mm -hmm. She probably could have given you a great answer. I'm actually going to be on the panel with her on Thursday on this big conversation on race that um, they're having in California and being in California. They've asked me to participate. So I'll give you guys the details. I mean, listen to that. They could answer that question. In fact, maybe I'll ask them that question. But that's okay. my answer. It's probably a weak answer. But I don't think it's a weak answer. I, I think, you know, 
the idea is we're just trying to articulate these things in a way that hopefully everybody can understand and right. just at least encourage some engagement. Right. Um, I'm not here trying to promote Netflix on this podcast, but another movie you can watch is if you've ever seen the documentary 13th that oh, Ava DuVernay made about okay. the prison system in America and what how it's become a part of systemic racism. Now, look at this. You know, I had, I had a brother in prison. Wow, I, d- I did not know that. Yes. And I remember going to visit him one time years ago, and my husband and I were, for, for a lot of good reasons, some of my other brothers and sisters just didn't, didn't want to take my mom at that particular time to go and visit him. But that's her son. Okay, and he hadn't killed anybody. He just got involved in some bad stuff and do just doing great now. I mean, turned his whole life around and all that. But we said, okay, I'm going to take her up there to go see him. And so we go up there to see him, and there's something called, I mean, the count. So they stop, and I said, where are you going? He says, oh, it's time for the count, and it's like four o'clock in the afternoon. So they go outside, line all the prisoners up for the count, and so I look out the window, and it's, I mean. Wall-to-wall black men. I burst into tears. I said, what in the world is going on here? I just couldn't believe it. And I'm thinking, okay, how does this happen? How does this happen? Where 95% of the people who are out there in that count right now are black men. We don't, black men don't make up 95% of the population. And I'm sure we're not committing 95% of the crime. That's a systemic problem that has 95% of the people lined up as black men. So I come, so my brother comes back in, I'm crying. He's like, what's wrong? I said, what is going on? And then he says, oh, did you see so-and-so, somebody we grew up with? I'm like, dude, I'm not here to like talk about the vids. <laughs> I am not here to talk about who is actually lined up out there. He goes, no, no, Seth, remember he used to like you. I said, dude, I'm trying to find out why 95% of these people out here are the brothers. What is going on here? He said, the system is designed to to, throw, to put us in here. And then we had a long conversation about it. I said, okay, well, you got to get out. You got to get out. And when you get out, you need to do something to help with this problem. That, and he that, is. That takes problem. me back to the er- earlier conversation, though, where an executive friend of yours sat down thinking the talk wasn't real. Right. And then it's like people have to engage un comfortably with what the reality is yes it has to. to be addressed you have to you have to deal with it you have to just talk about it and deal with it which is why data matters mm-hmm. facts matters matter you can't just start making stuff up right okay and then tweet and stuff and all that what do the facts say let's talk about the facts around how many african-american men and women are getting killed let's talk about that unarmed Facts matter. And then that's what you have your conversations about. And, you know, I'm a math person, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a numbers geek. And so I like to have my numbers. And, I like and, to have my facts. And I want to add to that you have to approach the information completely unbiased and be willing to engage. Don't, don't approach the information as you're trying to be manipulated. Right. Approach the information with a completely open mind because that's, you know, I, I mean, just the way social media was unfolding this weekend was extra maddening. And I had to disengage because I'm like, there's nothing productive happening from a discourse standpoint. That's exactly right, because people are talking about all kind of crazy stuff, which is why I had to write this decision time paragraph to get people back to what we're really 
talking about right now. Mm -hmm. What this crossroads is really about is not about some of this stuff that we saw on TV this weekend and some of that discourse and all that, albeit all important, all mm -hmm. part of the process, it's necessary, but let's get back to the main thing. We've got a systemic, long-standing problem of racism and discrimination in this country, and we have to get on about addressing that. And that's public policy, that's leadership, that's community action plans, that's uh, voting. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, 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 it's not easy. It's a lot. But we've got to recognize and we all have to engage. And that's key. We all have to engage. It's not a black thing. It's not a white thing. It's not a brown thing, yellow thing, red. We all have to engage in it. Okay. But data matters. Let me ask you a specific white engagement question all right. based on personal experience. Okay. So uh, on my radio show today, mm -hmm. we had Emmanuel Acho on from UT. Okay. Very smart guy. Okay. And he made the comment that took me back 30 years ago, but he made the comment this is a problem that white people have to fix, which we can talk about what that may or may not mean. This problem right here that we're talking about. Just this George, all the, the racism, the systemic yeah, racism. Yeah, the idea that, that, and, and he's saying it in a way, it's not a confrontational thing. He's saying mm -hmm. in a way that white people have to engage to fix the problem. You Almost have to. Right, okay. You have to, yeah, we all do. So 30 years ago, uh, I was trying to be a journalist. Okay. And I was really into music, and I was real lucky to get an interview with Chuck D, the lead rapper for Public Enemy. Cool. And this was huge for me. Okay. I'm 20 or whatever I am. Right. And uh, he talked to me for an hour. And it was extraordinary. I mean, it was just right. so great. Right. But one of the things that I asked him, and I'm very gung-ho and, you know, want to be involved in all these things. And I said, what can a white person do? He said, you just got to get out of the way, man. And he didn't say it in a mean way. Right. They actually had a song on that album called Move. Uh-huh. Get out the way, move. Right. But... Those are two very, they're 30 years apart. Right. But those are two very different ideas. Right. Right. One says, you have to fix this problem. And the other one says, man, you just got to get out of the way. Right. Let us work this right. out. So. And they both could be true depending on kind of your frame of reference. I mean, move could be that you are putting roadblocks and obstacles and hurdles in my way every chance you get to stop me from making progress, to hold me back, to hold my people back. And if that's the case, I do need you to move. And if you don't move yourself, I'm hoping there's somebody around in leadership that will move you. And if I'm the one in leadership, I will move you. And I've done it. Okay, because you have to get the roadblocks and the obstacles out of, way, out of the way that are preventing progress. So then you open it up so then everybody uh, can move. And so, yeah, that, 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 that's true, too. Mm -hmm. That's true, too. And then everybody has to engage, though. I truly believe everybody has to engage. We all have a role to play. We all, I mean, just my neighbor. I mean, my neighbor sent me the message I read you earlier saying, can we, you know, sit outside, socially distant, have some wine and cheese. I mean, I don't, I don't drink, but I'll have the cheese, okay? <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll give me the cheese and give me some grapes, okay? And I'll drink your wine water, you have the cheese. Okay, and so, and she just wants to have a conversation. Have the dialogue. They're white, we're black. Let's just talk about some of this stuff. And we're going to do that. We're going to do that this week. I was kind of busy, so I just put back in caps, yes, okay? But we are going to have that dialogue because we have to do this together the world is so intertwined now and which is beautiful we have such a rich tapestry of cultures and so we got to take the rich tapestry of cultures 
and we got to paint a very, very different tapestry for the world right now. And we can do it. I mean, we can totally do it, but we can't do it by ourselves. We can't. I, I need you out of the way if you're blocking it. The people who want to block it, get out of the way or we'll move you out of the way. But we need everybody. We need everybody. And it's not just for you to fix. You, you, I'm just not going to rely on you mm-hmm. to fix this problem. Now, now some things I need uh, from a pub, public policy standpoint. There's some things I need from a leadership standpoint. So it's not saying because you're white or because you're black, Asian, Hispanic. I mean, it's not saying about the color. It's saying if you are in a position of authority or leadership to fix some of these problems, which a lot of white people are in a position of authority, then fine. I mean, there were certain things that Mark Cuban expected me to do as a black woman. I mean, I'm a black woman, but as the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. Right. He wasn't hung up on the fact that I was a black woman, and I tell people all the time, he wasn't trying to make history. He was trying to make a difference for his employees and found somebody who had, fortunately, thank God, a pretty decent reputation around being a leader, and he gave me a mandate. And there were some things he expected me to move, to do, some obstacles he expected me to move, some things he expected me to put in place. He expected me to execute on that plan that I shared with him. And so the people who were in the way, it's like, okay, let's put people where they need to go because we got something to get done here for the good of the whole. When your motives are right, when the outcomes that you want are pure, when they benefit everybody, so the bias is out of the system, people will rally around, they'll see that, and they'll get it done. And nobody was told to move. People move themselves. And if we got to do what we got to do, we will, uh, to get you out of the way because we got progress to make. This is about making progress. This is about history not repeating itself. This is about us embracing everybody. This is about that promise, that promise that America has made. We are going to make her come good on it. I know it might be a little bit late in the year. We're June 1st, but I could totally get behind the Cube Scent 2020 ticket. I mean, if we <laughs> no way. coming uh-uh. up in November, do we have time to get this thing going? Uh-uh, we ain't got time because I am too crazy, and I, I just, no, they don't, no, no, I would never run for office. All right, I have almost stolen an hour and a half of your time on this. Oh, I love it, though. I'm Thank enjoying you. it. Thank uh, you. I w- hope you got something to work with. Oh, I got a lot to work with. <laughs> but my, my question is, what was I supposed to ask you that I didn't ask you? What 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 do we need to get out there that I, I didn't get you to? Here's what we need from the people in Dallas. We need us to, I've lived in Dallas seven years. And what I love about Dallas, I love, love a lot about Dallas, okay? I love the fact that it's a big metropolitan area because I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. So I'm a city girl, so I like that. But I also like the the neighbor, the neighborly feel of it, the community's feel that when we put our minds to it, we can get it done. And we're all in this together. We've seen that with COVID. Uh, That's what I experienced in my six and a half years in North Carolina. So not only am I physically in the middle of my two worlds, California, North Carolina, I feel like I'm in the middle of my two worlds with the bigness of it all, but then the smallness of it all and the hospitality. And I can just reach out to you and you can reach out to me. We need to take that sense of community with all of our infrastructure and all of our resources and help each other and help solve this problem. Identify 
Where are the systemic problems? Give you an example. COVID comes up. Our kids have to go home to go to school. A lot of our African-American kids don't have the technology. They don't have the infrastructure. The digital divide is still real, and I've been talking about it for years, mm -hmm. okay? And so that shouldn't happen. We shouldn't have that. We shouldn't have our black and brown kids falling behind in math and in school because they couldn't participate in virtual learning to the degree that others could have because they don't have the infrastructure, the devices, the home situation, the stability, whatever the reason. That's ridiculous. And so we have to solve those kind of problems. We have to take all these different little crises, and they're not little, they're big crises, but we just have to take them in small chunks and say, okay, we're going to address that. Because that's how you deal with the system. So then you make sure your kids are educated. And so, and, and I mean educated just like it doesn't matter if it's the black kid, the brown kid, the yellow kid. They're all educated. Health disparities. Let's deal with that. The health systems. I mean, you take all these different systems and we all commit that we're going to help address them. We'll get there. It may not be by 2021. But we'll get there. And we just need to see incremental progress. But it's a mindset. It's a mindset that says this is unacceptable. Everybody gets to avail themselves of the promise. And we are all responsible, all of us, to make sure that that promise is kept to that little black kid over there, that little white kid over there, that little red kid over there, that little yellow kid over there. We have to decide the promise has to be kept. And that's why I think this time is different, because too many people saw George Floyd get murdered and said, uh-uh, that's not acceptable. We got to keep our promises. I can't thank you enough. It's been great. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. This is awesome. We're going to get it done. Let's get it done. Love you, man. I love you, too.